0: Hi there, welcome to the podcast about film news. I'm your host, Casper Salmon, you might know me from such places as the internet or real life, and this is the podcast where I'll be looking into casting announcements, festival developments, hot awards show goss, and mourning the loss of some of cinema's great names, uh, or not mourning their loss, depending on their compromised legacy uh depending on who's died that week obviously and generally just looking into any film developments that might have occurred over the last 7 days this is called the podcast about film news um and i'll hopefully be getting a few guests on the show over the next few weeks but i thought i'd fly this first one solo and see how it pans out um and i might get a jingle at some point who knows um, but essentially, for this first episode, I thought we'd just do things a little bit rough and ready, a bit like uh, the first episodes of RuPaul's Drag Race. When you look at the uh, season one, and they had no budget, and all the drag queens looked rough as hell. Perhaps uh, you'll re-listen to these episodes in years to come and say, "Oh my God, that's how the f- the uh, the podcast about film news started." Just it was just so slipshod and and honest and cool in the early days. It's such a shame he's sponsored by BMW now. Um, So anyway, on with the show. Okay, so part one, death. Uh, This week saw the death, sadly, of Nick Rogue and of Bernardo Bertolucci. Uh, And I think both of those deaths uh, give us some interesting lessons about how we're going to go forward with the culture, specifically talking about people's legacies uh, and their attitudes towards sex. Uh, and the way those can come to tarnish those legacies. And uh, I think the culture gives us some pretty interesting insight this week into how we're going to uh, move forward with people whose uh, careers were so interesting and so important and yet who need to be revisited in the light of shifting politics. Um, So Nick Rogue, first of all, Uh, such a sad one I remember seeing Walkabout on on the big screen at the BFI many years ago and it's such a dazzling and overwhelming experience seeing Walkabout I really entreat anybody listening to seek it out as soon as possible if they can and especially on the big screen where all of its madness and all of its kind of daring and audacity and everything sort of Uh, embarrassing almost about it, the way it dares so much, comes to transcend the form, I think. Uh, All of the colours in Walkabout, which Nick Rogue shot himself, uh, he was the cinematographer for his first two films for performance and Walkabout, uh, all of the colours in Walkabout are so vivid and all of the sounds, the screeching noises, everything glitchy and hallucinatory about it is so overpowering. Uh, watching it on the big screen. That's um, always going to be, I think, one of the biggest uh, uh, film experiences of my life, seeing that. Obviously, um, he's a a director of incredible power and I think a lot of uh, pictorial vividness. I think he's one of the directors who most has a sense of the terror of pictures. There always seems to me something... Uh, underlying his films to do with with panic and 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 worry, which you see right up to his treatment of Roald Dahl's The Witches, interestingly, uh, even on even on a film uh, that's ostensibly for children, you see something of his kind of uh, anxiety perspire through, and that is right down to his kind of kinetic filmmaking. Um, so I think it's really interesting to seek out. Films by him in, in the wake of his death, and and uh, uh I'd recommend Walkabout and Performance and um I suppose The Witches, three of my favourites. <laughs> um uh but I think it's interesting to see with Nick Rogue, and this act also goes for Bernardo Bertolucci. I think one of the things that we learned from uh his death this week, with an important lesson to draw, is that reading his obituary, his obituaries rather. Uh, you see the importance of apprenticeships to a director like him. And I was actually quite surprised to see how long he'd spent in apprenticeships, being mentored uh, and uh, learning in small jobs before he actually got his foot on the ladder. Um, And working as a second unit cinematographer, and then making his way up as a cinematographer for David Lean, and uh and for schlesinger on um, far from the madden crowd uh wonderful again crazy crazy colors and pictures in that uh it's interesting to see that he required so much experience before actually coming to make a film of his own i wonder if we actually give directors that much time now to kind of stretch their limbs around and it's the same with bertolucci who died as well this week uh who was apprenticed to Pasolini in the early stages of his career and whose influence by Pasolini you can see on on his early films um I just thought it was interesting to see that both of them had really spent so much time working with other people and had come to form their own kind of cinematics uh while sheltered by the by the vision of other people um Bertolucci's death obviously brings into play uh, lots of other questions and particularly questions about how we consider the legacy of artists of yore um, and people whose uh, uh, understanding of the world really doesn't match up to the way we see it now. How do we pay tribute and how do we uh, assess these careers um, and give give the correct dues to the talent and to the daring of someone like Bertolucci while decrying to the extent that it should be decried uh, his assault uh, of Maria Schneider with um, Marlon Brando uh, on the set of Last Tango in Paris. How do we do that? Uh, I think it was quite interesting to see this week that a lot of writing on the subject of, Bert- of Bertolucci really didn't shy away from this aspect of his career. And in particular, there was a really good piece by Peter Bradshaw in The Guardian, which is worth looking out, um, talking about changing perceptions of Last Tango in Paris. Um, and I think I'd add to that piece, to my understanding of it, uh, the fact that Bertolucci's uh, ethics are right there throughout his career, um, and you can see them, especially in the later stages of his career, where he seemed to sort of fall back on um, on transgression and on, on shock and controversy. Uh, and you see that in Stealing Beauty and in The Dreamers as well in the late stages of his career. You see this kind of leering perspective. And I think it's not possible to look away from that. Uh, you have to consider that as a as part and parcel of his, of his cinema. And so I think any tribute uh, to Bertolucci that, that obviously uh, recognises his immense gift uh, and also uh, pays respect to his shifting uh, dynamics to the different scale in his cinema uh, from intimate, personal sexual dramas to kind of massive frescoes. Uh, uh, even doing that, you still have to recognise that there's something in his in his outlook that doesn't jive with now and that we kind of have to ask questions about. And I think it, it was interesting to see that a lot of writing about Bertolucci didn't uh, look away from that aspect of him. And I, I really find a lot of salutary uh, qualities in that. A bit of hope that going forward with uh, people like uh, Polanski and Woody Allen, that when we come to assess their legacies, we will look these aspects of their lives right in the face. Um, So, yeah, moving on to casting news now. So, um, in film news, a couple of casting announcements that uh, caught my eye this week. I think one of the most interesting ones is the casting of Jonathan, Jonathan Majors, an actor who I think is going to be hitting the big time pretty soon and who seems to be everywhere at the moment. The casting of Jonathan Majors in Aaron Sorkin's forthcoming film The Trial of the Chicago Seven, which I think is is starting to shoot pretty imminently. Um, and Majors has joined Sasha Baron Cohen and Eddie Redmayne in the film. Um, and Cohen's going to be playing Abby Hoffman, uh, the leader of the Youth International Party. And um, Eddie Redmayne's going to be playing an activist called Tom Hayden, whom I hadn't heard of, uh, uh, among the seven defendants charged by the federal government with conspiracy and um, inciting to riot and other charges about anti-Vietnam War and countercultural protests that were taking place in Chicago at the time. Uh, this was in the, in the late 60s. Uh, and... Um, Bobby Seal, who Jonathan Majors is going to be playing was the eighth defendant until he had his trial severed uh, during the court case um, which lowered the number of defendants obviously but his trial was severed I think because of racism uh, so that he could be treated separately to the white defendants and Seal was bound and gagged in the trial and sentenced to four years in prison for contempt of court. Uh, and interestingly, I found out this week that he's the person mentioned in the Graham Nash song, Chicago, uh, from his album Songs for Beginners. Really good record. Uh, listen to that. Uh, so, yeah, I think pretty interesting casting there. And uh, the film could be good if it manages to tie in its politics to uh, to our own times and our own freighted kind of uh, idea of activism and of... Political rage and of and of uh, democratic power and uh, powerlessness in 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 front of the authorities. Um, slightly worried that Aaron Sorkin's going to give it a bit of the old sledgehammer, and not too sure that you can trust him in a kind of procedural mode, uh, not to go down the declamatory route and and give it the his grandstanding best. But from what I can see of the trial on the Wikipedia page, what I can see of the trial uh, is that it was a really juicy one that kind of commandeered the attention of the nation. Um, and in particular, uh, 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 Abby Hoffman, who's played by Sasha Baron Cohen, looks to have been a really kind of sprightly and fun guy who was essentially constantly undermining and, and um, pranking the judge who was in charge of the trial, who was also called Hoffman, Julius Hoffman, who was kind of always in an in an uppity way, reminding everybody that Abby Hoffman wasn't his son, um, and Abby Hoffman was basically essentially uh, uh, trolling him the whole way through the court case. So I think there could be something pretty interesting there. And um, from the description of it, the film writes itself just a little bit worried about the about the Sorkin aspect. But what's interesting about this casting news is that Majors. Um, has also been cast in Jordan Peele's television series, Lovecraft Country, sorry, Lovecraft Country, (laughs) not county, country. Uh, uh, And I'll just read you the description. It says, Atticus Black, the the series follows Atticus Black as he joins up with his friend Letitia and his uncle George to embark on a road trip across 1950s Jim Crow America in search of his missing father. Um, this begins a struggle to survive and overcome both the racist terrors of white America and the terrifying monsters that could be ripped from a Lovecraft paperback. <laughs> so this is Jordan Peele still in horror film mode, I think. Uh, and Jonathan Majors joins a really exciting and uh, uh, wonderful cast, including Mi Musaku and Ellis, Michael K. Williams, um, and an actor who was uh, who also played Bobby Seal in a 1995 film, Courtney B. Vance, uh, in uh, Panther from 1995, which is a Mario Van Peebles film, which looks to be really, really fun. Angela Bassett's in it, playing Betty Shabazz. Anyway, I haven't seen it, but if anybody has seen it, uh, let me know and let me know if it's any good and worth looking out. Uh, but pretty interesting that um, Powers is joining a TV series, that seems to mirror the plot of a film that's just come out, uh, Green Book, starring Mahershala Ali and Vigo Mortensen, which tells uh, a story of two people taking uh, a road trip along segregated roads... Uh, sorry, along roads in segregated America, um, and which has come out to a fair bit of commentary that's talking about potential racism in the film and in the way it centres a white person kind of saving a black person and it looks like peel by using horror uh is is potentially really going to get to the heart much more of the kind of underlying terror of that time rather than uh uh, adopting a story of friendship to vehicle those ideas not that i've seen green book but um doesn't doesn't sound entirely promising so far In other casting news, uh, Isabelle Huppert popped up on my Instagram. Follow Isabelle Huppert on Instagram, especially if you're gay. Um, Popped up on my Instagram this week uh, in a leather jacket with a high ponytail. uh, uh, Looking fabulous, obviously. And this was a still from a new film that she's doing, which I looked up. uh, And it's called La Daronne. And she will be playing somebody called called. Patience Portefeu, uh, who's described as a French-Arabic translator working for the anti-drug squad in Paris. One day she sets off to help out a woman's troubled son as a favour and gets embroiled in a failed drug deal inheriting a pile of cannabis. While keeping her job with the anti-drug squad, Patience crosses to the other side and becomes a well-known drug dealer. <laughs> so I've become obsessed with this film project. Just a bit of uh, casting news for you there. Isabelle Huppert as a drug dealer in the <laughs> in the Parisian suburbs, uh, crossing the lines to uh, uh, deal weed to Arabic teenagers. Anyway, um filming has got underway on this. It's by the director, Jean-Paul Salomé, who's decent, I think. And um, apparently, Isabelle Huppert's been swatting up on her Arabic for the film. She's really put a lot of work in. And uh, she, look, she looks fab in the stills that I've seen from the film. Um, looking forward to that one. Uh, and a last bit of uh, casting news, although I'm just remembering now that I forgot to mention that there's... Um, an interesting Netflix documentary uh, about the Black Panthers when I was talking about Bobby Seale earlier on, Uh, an interesting documentary on Netflix called um, Black Panthers, Vanguard of the Revolution, which is worth looking out if you haven't seen it. Um, Just a little tip there. Um, but a, a, a final bit of casting news, which is that Greg Kinnear and Lesbe- Leslie Manville have been cast in a film called Misbehaviour, which I think is shooting now, um, which centres on the disruption of the 1970 Miss World Contest, which was hosted by Bob Hope. And uh, Greg Kinnear's being uh, is playing Bob Hope. Really good bit of casting there, I think. Uh, and Leslie Manville's playing his wife. Um, and uh, it's directed by Philippa Lowthorpe, who won a BAFTA for uh the uh for best miniseries series with three girls, which was pretty good I think. Um and they're joining a pretty decent cast, some a pretty hot stuff uh, cast there with um Kira Knightley and well, I, I, actually I don't think Kira Knightley's very good at acting, but anyway, Goo Goombartha Roar, um Jesse Buckley, some pretty good names. And um and the story is a good one obviously if you don't know about the disruption of the Miss World contest um just a slight concern looking at this project that it could go a bit um a bit calendar girls and a bit you know british film you know british films uh so a slight worry there that it could really tip into kind of um hoity toity comedy of manners but if it gets the balance right i think this could be a this could be a decent thing just a, a little worry that with that title misbehavior that they're going to be giving it a bit of the old side eye in uh, in the look at the film, but otherwise, um, Lothrop can direct like hell, uh, and this is a film with a, a female perspective and a female, predominantly female cast that I think could go places. So, uh, look out for that one. Bit of uh, box office news now. I think, <clears throat> um, I think the 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 big box office stories of the week are that. Uh, Roma and The Favourite so the Alfonso Cuaron and Yorgos Lanthimos films Roma and The Favourite have opened to some pretty good figures and some decent figures that will give them uh, a great platform for competing at the Oscars if that's the sort of thing you're interested in uh, and uh, essentially I think the, the Roma story is, is most interesting because it's done well in the on the screens that it was released on uh, but there's a bit of a hoo-ha as there always is around kind of Netflix cinema and television uh, releases. There's a bit of hoo-ha about um, the release of the film in Mexico uh, and deadline reports that Alfonso Cuaron lamented the small number of Mexican cinemas showing his film. uh, And he tweeted um, that he would like many more theatrical engagements in Mexico uh, he says, we have all the theatres we've been able to get, which sadly is 40. To put that in perspective, Poland will exhibit in 57 halls and South Korea in 50. Roma is available to all cinemas who want to exhibit it. But here we get to the problem, which is that Netflix want to have their cake and eat it. And I think we are uh, we don't have time to, really to get into the heart of this. But this story of Roma's release is going to be really important, I think, for future releases Uh, and especially in the way that Roma's being geared up as an Oscar favourite. It just shows that Netflix is flexing, I think, at the moment, and trying to have (coughs) everything that it wants, and be television to everybody, and be cinema to everyone, and release its films on cinemas purely to contend for awards, but then shut out cinemas uh, by releasing Roma on its platform and i think uh it's it's a case that's really worth following if you're into that sort of thing just to see just to see what future developments uh we have in store uh, with regard to netflix and to online platforms starting to compete really with cinemas and essentially i think trying to shut cinemas down in netflix's case uh so it's a beautiful film, Roma, and I'll be getting onto it in a in a little second because um it's released in cinemas in the US this week and I might have a few words about it in closing. Uh but it's a beautiful film and I'm just a little bit concerned that that uh with its release on uh this viewing platform that all of its qualities will be slightly squashed down because it's so cinematic and beautiful and I'm a little bit little bit uh irritated by Netflix's tactics with this film and its release, and I think uh, we might come back to this on the show. Um, I've got to add also that Marvel's Venom uh, continues its box office dominance, which is exciting, and continues furthermore the box office dominance of Michelle Williams. Shout out Michelle Williams, a favourite on this show, (laughs) Uh, uh, who has notched her second 400 million plus film in 2018, what with uh, The Greatest Showman. So two dreadful films starring <laughs> starring Michelle Williams, having the year of her life. Uh, we love you, Michelle. And uh, hope to see you in many more blockbusters, blockbusters uh, along the line. Okay, and on to the last bit, which I suppose I want to be a, a roundup of other stuff, of... Articles or or podcasts worth listening to, things that you could check out, um, and I suppose releases of films in in the coming week. Um, There's an interview of Barry Jenkins, the director of uh, If Bill Street Could Talk. Well, the the director of Moonlight, but uh, his new film is If Bill Street Could Talk, and there's an interview of him uh, by Paul Thomas Anderson, which you can listen to by googling it, obviously. Uh, I think they were talking to the Directors Guild of America, um, obviously in, in Beale Street's Oscar run, they're doing this kind of prestige stuff. Uh, and it's really worth listening to, not least because Paul Thomas Anderson uh, has such an eye for directing and really gets Jenkins's cinematography and gets his understanding of characters uh, and kind of can illuminate some of the best scenes. Um and uh, I was quite interested to hear him call uh, one scene in If Beale Street Could Talk, where Regina King adjusts her wig, uh, to hear Paul Thomas Anderson call that the film the, the film scene of the year. Um, I'm kind of inclined to agree. It's a really, really wonderful scene in a film that I kind of need to do a lot more work on in my mind and need to think about a lot more. I think I kind of misjudged it the first time I saw it, and there's so much more going on in it than I had thought about and I'm desperate to see it again even though I'm sort of apprehensive because I found lots in it a little bit syrupy and a bit gloopy at times uh, and I just wonder if those opinions will hold up on a second viewing. Um, but that's really worth listening to, Paul Thomas Anderson and Barry Jenkins. Um, uh, of course there's a Lena Dunham profile in Uncut that came out and um, hit the big time this week which is really worth really worth reading. Uh, I don't want to go too much into Lena Dunham at the moment but I, the profile sort of um I I thought kind of redeems her a little bit and it's interesting to see that she's somebody who just has no limits who 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 doesn't care about what she says and for whom nothing is uh, uh nothing is off guard. Uh, I love a line that she says in the film, in in the film, in the profile. She says to the woman interviewing her at one point, showing her a picture of her uterus. Uh, Lena Dunham says, the doctor said he'd never seen a uterus as misshapen as mine. <laughs> I just think that's so funny. But in the article, it's sort of pointed up as evidence of her being some kind of millennial psycho. And she's just she's just a funny woman who doesn't understand her privilege and doesn't really understand the limits uh the limits that she should place on herself and on her talent and i'm just a bit uh, i don't know when i think about lena dunham i wonder if we're able to do her justice really in our culture and do justice to her talent while obviously uh you know finding her such a drag and such a pain in the ass um I just don't think we're really getting the best out of Lena Dunham. I saw her do a talk at South by Southwest um, about four or five years ago, and she was genuinely hilarious and interesting. Uh, And I think with her work on girls and on tiny furniture, she shows what talent she's got. So, uh, yeah, I'll be interested to see what she does with herself in years to come, because... If she can just get a grip on herself and somehow focus and and uh, and stop being a dick, then there there could be something to be made of her, of her genuine talent and her uh, uh, hilarious understanding of of language and of of situation comedy. Um, but this profile's really worth looking out because uh, Dunham's become such. A figure of hatred in recent years, and, and rightly so, I think, for all of her provocations and stupid bullshit. Uh, uh, I think this could mark a bit of a turning point, though, and I, I hope we get something decent from her at some point. Um, and lastly, just to say that there are two films coming out uh, uh, this week that are interesting. Lazaro Felice is coming out in the United States, if you're listening in the US, go and see Lazaro Felice. And Roma's coming out in the UK, apparently, is what it says on IMDb. Um, and it just occurs to me that those are two films that touch on the idea of servanthood in pretty interesting ways. They'd make a great double bill together. Um, Lazaro Felice centres a character who is kind of a vassal to vassals. Uh, Lazaro Felice touch is about um, uh, servants, essentially uh uh serfs who are kept uh in servitude by a marquess uh who hasn't allowed them to <clears throat> sorry to seek independence from her in any way and who keeps them locked up and doesn't pay them uh and uh lazaro is the is the servant to these people and i think um uh, Alice rovaca the director makes really really interesting points that are political obviously and their in their bent, about um, about the lowest of the low and the way capitalism requires there always to be uh, somebody serving other people and, and the way we essentially inflict misery on others even when we ourselves are living in misery and the way we replicate patterns of violence. I think there's something really interesting in that discourse. Um, whereas Roma, uh, the Alfonso Cuaron, the Alfonso Cuaron film rather romanticizes the idea of servanthood at times and is coming in, I think, for a little bit of flack on that basis. Uh, although, obviously, the film uh, touches on so many other things and I think is so beautiful and brilliant and uh, nostalgic and rich and full of poetry, uh, but it does have this view of. Uh, the servant at its character which is slightly romantic and slightly sort of mother saint in the way it looks at her but uh, uh, I think also has a kind of uh, wicked eye too and a kind of ironic distance in the way it treats Quaron's childhood uh, and this woman who was the servant in their family both films that are really worth watching uh, and I urge everybody to see them And that brings us to the end of the show. I've got nothing else to talk about uh, this week, but hopefully in weeks to come we can talk about the casting of the film Cats from the Andrew Lloyd Webber musical, which continues to plague my nightmares. Um, But until then, thank you for listening so much, and I'll see you again on forthcoming episodes, I hope. Bye.